Charlie Ellington was um, a great friend to our family. Uh, Charlie, Charlie drove the Lance truck. Um, he was an incredible guy. He, he opened his home to people he didn't even know. He was always smiling. He was always generous. He was always helpful. Charlie loved students. Charlie was a, he was, he was a dog guy, particularly beagles. Um, as a matter of fact, that, that's Honey that you're looking at on the screen. That, that's our beagle. Guess where Honey came from? Yes, I know God, but guess where Honey came from? To Charlie. And, and, and Honey was a brilliant dog. She lived to be a little over 13 years old. And then, and if all dogs go to heaven, well, I'm not going to go there. But anyway, she was, she was the best dog we ever had. And, and, and that's her on the back deck. And one afternoon, I decided to have a conversation with, with Honey. And so I went on the back deck. I got down on my knees. I got right down in her face. And I looked at her. And of course, she was very attentive. And, and I asked her, I said, Honey, I, I, I got three questions for you. And I, and I asked her, I said, um, who are you? What are you here for? Honey, what's your purpose? And, and she cocked her head sideways. And you know, she looked at me with that, I'm not sure what planet you're on, man. But, but she had that look on her face. And then she licked my face. She was a great dog. The reason I tell you the story is because that conversation with Honey has a lot to do with the conversation we're going to have tonight because um, no dog or fish or squirrel or chimpanzee or cat or dolphin, I mean, no animal ever lost a night's sleep pondering the great questions of the universe. They never did. They never did. I know Disney and Pixar go to great lengths to try to convince us that animals think these great thoughts, but, but they don't. That's just people. We, we think those kind of thoughts. And if you want to test that statement, take a ribeye steak, grill it to medium, put it in the face of your dog, and ask your dog, would you like to either have this steak, or would you like to talk about the great ponderments and the larger questions of life? Raise your hand if you think the dog would choose the steak. 100% of the time. Every time he will. But I can talk to you about the great questions of life. I could ask you the questions. I could say, who are you? I could ask you, what are you here for? What's your life purpose? I mean, those, those are some of the most important questions of life because those are questions about identity. And identity is one of the most important things there is. You, you understand this. When, when I became a Christian, when you became a Christian, here's what the Bible says, that w when we accept Christ as our Savior, and it's in 2 Corinthians 5, which is not the passage for tonight, but anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new person has come. When I invite Christ into my life, all of a sudden, he immediately begins to change my heart and begins to change my thinking and begins to change my mind, and, and he gives me a new Identity is the word. Say the word identity. Identity. I guess it'd be fair for us to um, define identity because here's what identity is. Identity is who God says we are. Identity is, is the person that God made us to be. And usually what people do is when they start talking about their identity, people start talking about things like what they do for a living or where they came from or what group or tribe they, they belong to. It's kind of a herd mentality thing. But when you get the questions of identity worked out, so much of life just goes so much better. I mean, everything in life. It's one of the reasons identity is so important. And, and most people, you know this, most people, they, they struggle with their identity. Everyone in this room, everyone watching online, you, you've struggled with your Identity. Maybe some of us in this room, someone watching online are struggling with their identity right now. And, and, and most people do struggle with it. And here is what God says to every one of us who belong to him. Here's what God thinks. Here's what God, who never misleads and never lies, says about you. It's out of Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, but most of it is in chapter 1. So here's what God says. 
You're unconditionally loved. You're chosen. You're adopted. You're redeemed. You're, you're covered in grace. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are accepted by the, by the God who knows everything there is to know about you. Accepted. You're pure. You're blameless. I'm forgiven. You're part of God's forever family. You belong to him. One day, he says, I'm going to bring you into a glorious future, and you're going to spend eternity with me in a perfect place. That's what he says. That's what he says about you. And when you and I start believing what God says about us, when we start living according to his definition of us, everything changes. So, so that's how God sees you. So here's an important question. If God sees you that way, how should you see you? I'm just asking. Maybe here's a more important question. If God sees people that way, and he does, how should we see people? What people? All people. I know all people aren't believers, but, but this is how God says he looks at his people. When you get the identity questions right, so much goes so much easier. When you don't get the identity questions right, life, life is so much harder. Um, because you don't know how you fit in. You don't know where you fit in. You don't, you don't know how other people fit in. And when you don't get those identity questions right... So tonight, here's a multiple choice. We're going back to the classroom. Here's a multiple choice. Only one of these are correct. It's, it's the one that's biblical. But, but you take a choice. Is it number one, is it number two, or is it number three? Um, which one of these statements is the correct way to view ourselves, the biblical way to view ourselves? One is, I live my life out of an identity based on how God sees me. Number two, I live my life out of an identity based on how others see me. Number three, I live my life out of an identity based on how I see myself. <laughs> Which one do you think it is? Raise your hand if you say it's number one. And you'd be exactly right. I live out of an identity based on how God sees me. So, so there's this guy in the Bible and he's struggling with his identity. And guys, honestly, in his life, he has gotten the short end of the stick. Circumstances and people and especially culture has robbed him of so much in life and has affected the way that he sees himself and, and has, has hurt him. And now he's struggling with it. With it. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us his name. It gives us his title. And tonight, here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you to care about him tonight. You say, well, I don't know him. I know, but, but I want you to try to look into his eyes and, and feel what he's feeling and what's breaking him on the inside. And, and I want you to try to understand his problem and, and look at him with compassion. I want you to care about what he cares about. Because he's struggling. He's been struggling for years. He's struggling with his identity. And his life matters. I mean, everybody's life matters. Do this. Um, look around the room. Find somebody that you don't know that well or maybe someone that you don't know at all. Don't move. Just look around the room. Um, don't, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look around the room. Some of you are looking at me. Don't look at me. Look around the room. Find somebody that you don't. You're not going to have to get up and go say anything to them. I just want you to look around. Find somebody and just look at that person and keep looking at that person. You're not stalking them. <laughs> you're just looking at them. And that person that you're looking at, you know this, right? That per don't look at me. Look at them. The, the person that you're looking at, their life matters, right? Their life matters as much as your life matters. 
A person that you're looking at, he, he has hopes and dreams and he has aspirations and he, and he has wants and he has desires and he's very gifted and he's created with purpose and meaning. That, that, that lady that you're looking at, she has hopes and dreams and she has purposes and her life is created with meaning and there's things that she wants to do with her life and her life matters as much as your life matters. Since God feels that way about people that you just looked at in Ephesians chapter 1, I'm, I'm guessing to approach life biblically, that's how I ought to look at people. So I'm, I'm just asking you tonight, if you would look at this guy in Acts chapter 8, and if you would care about what he cares about. <laughs> I promise you this, if you do that, when you leave here tonight, you won't look at people the same anymore. If we'll start practicing on some of these biblical characters and try to crawl inside their skin and care about what they care about, it changes the way that we look at people. For the better, it changes them. Now, since we don't, we don't know this guy's name, we're just going to give him a name. We're going to call his name Evan. That's not his name. But, but before we look at Evan's story, you need to know the backstory. It's in, in Acts chapter 8. And wow, am I leaving out a lot of important stuff. But this is in Acts chapter 8. And uh, we, we pick up with this fellow by the name of Philip. He's in, he's in Samaria. Say, oh no, not Samaria. I mean, Samaria. I mean, Philip was a Jew and Jews didn't go to Samaria. Matter of fact, when you look at Philip, um, the second deacon named in the Bible is this guy, Philip. They, they later called him the evangelist. He's not, one of, he's not the Philip that's one of the 12 original disciples, followers of Jesus. This is a different Philip. Later he earned the name the evangelist, but this guy takes a prominent role in the New Testament and, and in the life of the early church. This guy's life mattered. He got the identity thing right. He made a huge difference in the lives of a lot of people. But Acts chapter 8 says he's in this city called Samaria. And you know that the Jews hated Samaritans. He goes to the most hated of cities in Israel. Matter of fact, Israel hated them so much, they said that part of Israel isn't even Israel anymore. Those are the Samaritans. And Samaritans, they, they hated the Jews. And the history was a long, ugly one. And if you ask any Jew, what they would say would be, well, centuries before the result of war and captivity, that the Samaritans became a nation of, of pagan half-breeds. And they abandoned their faith in God, and they intermarried with all these other pagan nations, and they became godless, and they, they raised children that were worse than they were. Any Jew would tell you that the Samaritans, they walked away from Yahweh. They walked away from God. They walked away from the Holy Scriptures. They adopted all kinds of horrible pagan practices. And sometimes they would take the Bible and they would sprinkle a little bit of Bible on their cult practices. Sometimes they would mix a little bit of the Old Testament with some of their superstitions and some of their magic. They were messed up. And the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them. And Philip, the Jew, the believer, He's up in Samaria, and he's telling people about this great God who came down, this Jesus who lived a sinless life, who died on Calvary to free us and to forgive us and to set us onto a whole new course of life and to change our future and our trajectory and to change our family tree. And this Jesus who would transform us from the inside out, this one that offered eternal life. And the Holy Spirit of God poured down on Samaria and the power of God in those gatherings fell and, and countless lives were being changed. We would call it a revival. Some of us would say, well, it was, a, it was an awakening. There was a unique outpouring of God in the midst of this group of people. Miracles were taking place. And right in the middle of all that that was happening in Samaria, and, and I'm leaving so much out, but it was an incredible outpouring of God, here's what Acts chapter 8 says. Acts chapter 8, we'll, we'll look down in verse 6. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and they saw the signs that he was performing for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came and, and, and 
came out of many who were being possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. And right in the middle of that great work, down, down in verse 26, listen to this. In the middle of that, the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said to him, Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So you get it. There's revival is taking place. Many people are being saved, being born again. The church is being born in this city of Samaria. Countless lives are being changed. And in the middle of that, an angel of the Lord comes to Philip and says, Philip, go down to the desert road. And, and if he said that to a lot of us in the room, oh, let's be honest, it's just us, right? We'd protest. But God, look, look at what you're doing. Oh, by the way, but Lord, those two words, they don't work for followers of Christ. When he says to us anything, our, our response is never, but, but Lord, but, but Lord, but, but those two things don't go together. But if, if I have a feeling for a lot of us in the room, if the angel of the Lord came to us and said, now leave this place, I know this is the greatest outpouring you have ever seen, the greatest work of God you've ever witnessed in the lives of people, but I want you to go down to the desert. We say, but Lord, look at all that's happening here. Never seen anything like this. Scores of people, family trees are being changed. People are being healed. The lame can walk. The blind can see. People who, who are sick have been healed and are being healed. Salvation is taking place. The glory of God has fallen upon this place. The desert, it's hot out there in the desert. People die out there in the desert. You'd wonder that. Even if you didn't have enough guts to say it to the angel, you would wonder it. But Philip, he said none of that. He didn't ask one question. Questions like, why there? Why now? What's the plan? Or as we affectionately say here in the deep south, say what? Didn't ask any of that. And ask any of that. Here's what the Bible says, verse 27. So he got up and went. Now, why would God tell Philip to get up, to leave here, and to go out there in the desert? So he's traveling in this, this dirty, dangerous, dusty desert road. And some of us would say it doesn't make any sense. But you understand because you've been following God. If God says go, you go. Right? So Philip leaves Samaria to head down to the desert. He boards a train. Oh. He gets in a Corvette. He jumps on the back of a camel. No, he puts on his best lasting sandals and he takes off walking. You need to know that from Samaria up there down to Jerusalem was 42 miles. From Jerusalem down to Gaza was another 50 miles. So he might have walked as many as 100 miles. We don't know. It, it wasn't a walk across the street. It wasn't even a walk across the county. I mean, it was halfway be between here and the coast. And he's walking, and he doesn't know why he's walking other than the fact that the Lord said to do this. Which, by the way, is what we're supposed to do. Whenever the Lord says, do this, then we do this, right? You shake your head, yes, but sometimes we don't, do we? Philip did. And he doesn't know why. He just knows the Lord said, go. So he's going. You, you can hear the flip-flop, the patter, the, the leather on the bottom of his feet. You know, he walks a mile, two miles, 10 miles, 20 miles, 30 miles, 50 miles, pop, 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 pop. You know, he rests overnight after about 15 to 20 miles, and then he gets up the next day, he goes again. He walks all day long. He gets up the next day, he goes again. He walks all day long. He gets up the next day, he goes again. He doesn't even know why he's going, but he's going. And unknown to Philip out there somewhere on this desert road, unknown to Philip, somewhere out there on this desert road, there is the chief financial officer of the queen of Ethiopia, a lady by the name of Candace. We're calling the man's name Evan, but we don't know his name, but he's like the minister of the treasury of Ethiopia. And he had just traveled a long way to get to Jerusalem. 
As a matter of fact, it was a dream of his. It was a plan of his. It was something he'd saved for, most likely for years. The queen gave him permission to go, and he came all the way from Ethiopia, which in that day, Ethiopia was a gigantic country. So he might have traveled as many as a thousand miles one day, one way, not one day, one way to get from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem. And the reason he came to Jerusalem, it was singularly this. He wanted to worship the God who was God in the city of God, in the temple of God, where God came down and met with his people. Unlike any other place on planet earth. That's why he came. And Evan had traveled this far distant road. And and I know that's not a big deal to you. But I'm asking you to care about what he cares about. If you would have known Evan, you would have known this was a huge, huge deal to him. It was the biggest thing that would ever happen in his life. I'm just asking you, I want you to care about what Evan cares about. He's a Gentile. He's not a believer. He's a great guy. He's an incredible man. He is very caring. He is extremely intelligent. He's a religious man, but he's not a believer. And he's traveled this long distance. We're not sure exactly how far the distance was, but he came a long distance. And I repeat, he came to Jerusalem, to the city of God, to worship the God who was God. He wanted to worship him in the temple in Jerusalem. He was so excited. He he'd longed for this for years. He planned for it. He planned this encounter in every detail. It, it was going to be one of those, this is the best day of my life experiences. That's what he thought was going to happen. And man, he is so pumped when he turns the corner and he rounds the curve and he sees Jerusalem, the great city of God, standing like this sentinel on a hill and he knows tomorrow I'm going to walk into the holy city. I'm going to walk into the temple of God. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to bring this sacrifice to him that I've brought all this way. I'm going to say and, and whatever it was he was going to say to God. And, and you cannot describe the joy and the anticipation in this man's heart. And then he arrives at the temple. Some of you who know the story, you know what happened to him. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, he, he has all these strikes against him. For, first of all, he, he can't enter the temple no eunuch was allowed to enter the temple, and he was a eunuch. He couldn't get in the temple. Second, he was a Gentile, and in that day, the Gentiles could not go into the temple to meet with God alongside the Jews. You couldn't do it. It wasn't allowed. They, they did have an outer court of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles, if allowed, could go out there in the outer court. But Evan wasn't allowed in the outer court because he was a eunuch, and he was a Gentile eunuch, and, and, and no one could, could enter the assembly of the Lord. So they said, you can't come in here. I can't tell you the thousands of painful pounds of hard memories that came crashing down on his heart. He's thinking, I'm a eunuch. I'm a slave. I, I can't ever have a family of my own. I'm an outcast. I'm, I'm rejected by men, and apparently I'm rejected by God. I can't even get in the temple to worship God. He wouldn't let me in. I've spent an entire fortune getting here only to find out that I'm not good enough. He traveled so far to come to this day to worship Yahweh only to experience this bitter and rejecting disappointment. All that he had hoped for would happen, none of it happened. He just vaporized before his eyes. And the only thing that he could do was return home. All he knew was, I am unaccepted, and I am unacceptable. And I'm going to return home more disgraced than I came. I'm going to be forever branded. I'm going to be reminded over and over again that I'm an outcast. That's what he knows. That's what he feels. And now he's on the desert road back to Ethiopia. He's lower than low. Disgrace 
fills his head and dread fills his heart. And that's heaven. I want you to feel what he feels. Now, you know, follow me. I know he's not the only person on planet Earth to hear these poisonous words. You're not enough. You're not good enough. You aren't smart enough. You aren't accepted enough. You aren't rich enough. You aren't pretty enough. You aren't handsome enough. You aren't talented enough. You're not educated enough. You're not wanted. You're not accepted. We don't like your looks. We don't like your friends. We don't like your clothes. We don't like your last name. We don't like the car you drive. You are not enough. He's not the only person who's ever felt those words, who's ever heard those poisonous words, and they hit you with the force of a sledgehammer. And listen, if you accept those words, if, if you... If you let it, they will, they will chisel away at your identity, your identity of who God says you are, your identity of who God created you to be, your identity of, of the person that God is working to develop into the likeness of his son. Could I remind you that your identity is not what you do for a living? It's not your looks or your wardrobe or your house or your job or your family tree. It's not the music you listen to or how smart you are or not. It's not what other people say about you. Your identity is who God says you are. Your identity is who God says you are. I love that song we sing. No longer slaves. Remember the words from my mother's womb. You have chosen me. Love has called my name. I've been born again to your family. Your blood flows through my veins. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. That's, that's identity. I am a child of God. That's, that's my identity. That's who I am. That's, that's all that I am. I'm a child of God. If, if my identity is my job, then what's going to happen when I lose that job? If, if my identity is my ability to perform, then what happens to me when I can no longer perform, if, if my identity is my good looks, which in my case, that is not it, and never will be it, if, if my identity is my good looks, then what happens when I lose my good looks? Identity is not about where I was born or not born. It's not about my nationality or, or what school I went to or didn't go to. My identity is not how much money I make or what kind of house I live in, what kind of car I drive, the brand that's on my clothes or on my shoes. My identity is I am a child of God. My identity is I am anchored in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and He is my King, and He is my Lord, and He is my Savior, and that's really all you need to know about me. And if there's anything good that you could ever say about me, it's only because there is a Savior who died on the cross and rose again on the third day to redeem this sorry man and to save him and to put his feet on solid rock and to give him a future that was worth having and to make his life worth living until the end of his days and then to carry him off into glory. And all of that good has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. My identity is Jesus Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's who my identity is. I'm a follower of him. And I know, because I hear it all the time, and I see it in the faces of my students, and they tell me, I know that a lot of times people will say hurtful things, and they, they, they often fail to do the right thing, or they do the wrong thing. And sometimes people will let you down. Sometimes they let you way down. And sometimes... 
bad stuff doesn't just happen to good people. Bad stuff happens to God's people. And, and it hurts. <laughs> wow, it hurts. Doesn't it? Thing about I like thing I like about people around here is we don't we don't pretend we say it like it is. People need to hear it like it is. And sure, it hurts and it and it's uncomfortable. But 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 I I don't let those moments define who I am. Who I am in Christ is what defines me. You listen very carefully to this. Some of you are so worried about what someone else thinks of you. You want to so please individuals who don't even care about you. Sometimes you'll do what you know is not right in order to please people whose voices don't even matter in your life. Or they shouldn't matter in your life. People, People will try to convince you that the only way that you will ever be enough is if you do what they want you to do. If you think like they want you to think. If you act like they want you to act. They want to mold you into their image of you. But it's a warped, broken mold. God didn't put you on this planet to be what others want you to be. He put you on this planet to be what he designed and what he died and rose again for you to be. That's identity. And two simple keys to true success in this life. One is this. One is knowing who are the voices in your life that really matter. Because there are more voices around you that don't matter than voices around you that do matter. You, you, you know what I'm saying? There are more lips that speak poisonous lies than speak biblical truth. There, there are multitudes of messed up people all around us that they choose to use and abuse others for their own hurtful purposes. And one of the tricks that they try to use in order to get you to do what they want you to do is to try to convince you that you're not enough like you are. You need to be like this. You need to think like this. You need to act like this. You need to do what I want you to do. This culture is saturated in that kind of poison. We're swimming in that kind of poison. It's killing people. Give me an example. I could give you a thousand. How's this? Cancel culture. There's all these voices around us that really don't matter. But they're spewing poison. And what I want to know is, God, what do you say about me? And God says, well, I, I'm, I'm, man, I'm for you. And you're made in my image. And you're remarkably and wonderfully made. And, and you're my child. And here's what I think about you. Here's what I feel about you. And that's, that's the truth. One of the things is, is knowing whose voice to listen to. But here's the second key to success, and that's learning, learning to replace the lies of culture with the truth of Scripture. Helps us in a thousand ways. I mean, you think about some of the negative, unkind, untrue statements that people make. What if you replaced those lies with the truth of this? God, you, you love me. You unconditionally love me. You chose me. You initiated it. I didn't initiate it. You chose me. You adopted me into your family, and you redeemed me. You covered, you covered me in grace. You blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly. You accepted me even though you knew. You look at me, and you see the white-hot holiness of your son. You look at me, and you say you're pure, you're blameless, you're forgiven, you're part of God's forever family. One of the keys to getting this identity thing right is, is understanding and replaying in your mind how God sees you. Evan was having such a hard time with that because his whole life, all he knew was, I'm not enough like I am. they got to change me. He's been more broken than he's ever been. He, he feels so rejected and so alone. And, and tonight I want you to crawl up into the caravan with him. I want you to look into his eyes and see this broken and hurt man. Yes, I know he's credentialed. He's like the minister of the treasury. I know that he sits in an elevated position unlike any other man in his whole country. But when he's alone with his thoughts... 
What he knows is, I am unaccepted. I am unacceptable. They just underscored that fact down at the temple, and now he's on his way home. But what he doesn't know is that he's being chased. <laughs> Philip is chasing him, and Philip doesn't even know why. God's chasing him, and God knows exactly why. The eunuch, he, he doesn't know why he was turned away at the temple. What's wrong with me? That's his question. Don't miss this. Acts 8 says that he's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading a copy of Isaiah, but it's not clear to him why he's reading it, and it's not clear to him what Isaiah's trying to say to him. It's clear to us why he's reading it. Part of it is clear to him. He knows that the Bible has these different rules in it. And he gets to the temple and he's excluded. So he figures, well, if I read the Bible, maybe, maybe the Bible, maybe I'll find that rule number why they're excluding me and not letting me in there. And, and so he wants to know why you wouldn't let me in. The thing that he doesn't know, though, as he's reading Isaiah, is he doesn't know God's chasing him. He doesn't know God's pursuing him. He doesn't know God does that. So he's reading Isaiah. He's trying to, he's trying to figure it out. The rules, the regulations of the temple worship had, had perplexed him. So in order to get his answers, he obtains a copy of the holy writings of Isaiah. He knows that, that, that Judaism is based on these teachings found in the ancient text of Scripture. He teaches us a principle. Don't miss this. In order to get right answers for your heart, you need to get the Word of God in your hand. Don't have time to go there tonight, but, but that's what one, the eunuch teaches me a lot, but that's one of them. If, if I want answers, then I need to go to the book that has the answers. Now, let me ask you this, honestly. Um, how many Bibles do you have in your house? Raise your hand if you got more than five. If you got more than five. Most of us, we do. Raise your hand if you say, I think I got more than 10 Bibles in my house. We, a bunch of us. We got, we got, we, a lot of us, we don't even know how many Bibles we, we've got. They're, they're so easily accessible to us. But getting your hands on Holy Scripture in, in Evan's day, it was almost impossible. Almost no one had a copy of Scripture. Almost no one. There were a few copies. And one of the reasons was this. It would take a scribe an entire year to copy, for instance, just the book of Isaiah. He had to copy it not just with meticulous precision. It had to be perfect. And if it wasn't perfect, it would be thrown away and they would start over again. And when I say perfect, I mean there could not be one letter that was wrong not one letter. They would count from Genesis 1-1, where, you know, in the beginning, to the last word in the Old Testament. They would, they would count, and, and that letter had to be exactly right. They'd count this many tens of thousands of letters, and this many tens of thousands of letters. And if it was the same letter, they know, okay, we, we got that right. A, a year just to, trans, just to sit down and copy because it had to be perfect, because this wasn't the book of man. This was the book of God, and it had to be right. And so for him to have a copy of Isaiah, not only did it cost him a fortune, literally a fortune, in many cases, years of a person's salary, that's what it would cost. And he's in his chariot, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading things like this. Though your sin be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. He's reading things like, He himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. But he don't know what that means. It perplexes him. 
He didn't understand what the prophet was saying. He, he desperately wants someone to unravel this mystery. He reads Isaiah, and Isaiah talks about being clean. Isaiah talks about being made acceptable before God. Isaiah talks about being changed from what we are. And he just left the temple, and he was told he wasn't clean. And he left the temple and he told he was not acceptable to men and he was not acceptable to God. And he was told there's no way you can ever change. And he's reading Isaiah and, and Isaiah's talking about all three of these things. And he's searching for truth. He doesn't know that truth has a name. And that name is Jesus. He doesn't know that what he's chasing is chasing him. And you can hear the slap, slap, slap of sandals off in the distance. And when Philip rounds the bend after days, 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 and days of, of walking through the desert, not hearing a word, not even knowing why he's, he's out there, he looks up, he sees this chariot off in the distance, and the Lord says, Philip, that's why you're here. here here's what verse 28 and following says. It says, The eunuch is, is sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Aloud. He's reading it aloud. And the Spirit told Philip, Go up and join that chariot. And when Philip ran up to it, he heard him, he heard Evan, he heard the eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, Do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And Philip, verse 35, proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning with that scripture. Now get the picture. Philip approaches the chariot. He hears the eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah out loud. And Philip says to him, Nice weather we're having, man. Man, those are some great-looking camels. That's one beautiful chariot you're riding in. Is that what he does? No, he doesn't do any of that small talk. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invites Philip to come up into the chariot and, and explain it to him. True or false? That was a divine appointment. Philip goes from preaching and teaching and talking to large masses of people in Samaria to a one-on-one -on -one encounter with a guy out here in the middle of the desert, out here in the middle of nowhere. And Philip is this guy that God says, Philip, you are a channel, you are a funnel. I'm going to work through you to help bring about change in that man's life. I submit to you that just like Philip, you are a channel, you are a funnel, and God wants to take your life and my life, and he wants to, through us, impact the lives of, of all these people that are around us. People who are far from God, but close to you. Philip climbs up into the chariot and and there on the desert road, Philip tells him the story. And I'm leaving out a lot of the story, but the eunuch bows his head and prays to the God of, of Israel, to Yahweh. And he prays for forgiveness, and he prays for salvation, and he, he prays for, for acceptance. And in that moment, he is born again by the Spirit of God. And in that moment, there's this rejoicing in heaven, and the angels are dancing. And in that moment, someone in heaven picks up that pen, probably written in red, and writes the eunuch's name in the Lamb's book of life. And then the eunuch says, well, Philip, what, what prevents me from being baptized? You're in the desert. There aren't rivers out there. There aren't ponds out there much. It's interesting God worked it out that the chariot would stop and Philip would find him right at a place where there was some water. Almost like, you know, like God orchestrated that or something. I mean, I don't know. You think water is a problem for God? Who made the seas and the oceans and the streams by the word of his power? He spoke them into existence, let there be, and there was. You think it would be a hard time for God to put a little bit of water out in the middle of the desert? God could turn the desert into water if he wanted to. Philip baptized, Philip, Philip baptized him. 
It's interesting to me that Evan had traveled a thousand miles or so to find God at a temple in Jerusalem where they turned him away. Instead, he finds God in the desert road miles from nowhere. And after he's saved, Philip baptizes him. And God changes his life and changes his thinking and changes his, his identity. This man who was rejected by men is accepted by God. This man who, who was lost was redeemed. Evan found himself loved and being chased by God and being covered in grace. For the first time in his life, he had an identity that was right. Up in the loft in the middle school room, we had these, um, these little papers all around. You know, students can pick them up anytime. Every once in a while, we just remind God's people how God sees us. So if they pick up one of these in the loft, it says... In Christ, I'm enough. I'm a beautiful person. I'm, I'm made in the image of God. I'm gifted. I'm priceless. I'm unique. I'm loved. I have purpose. I walk in shoes that no one else can fill. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing. I've been chosen by God. I'm forgiven and redeemed. I'm covered in grace. I'm unconditionally loved and accepted by the God who knows everything about me. I'm part of God's forever family. In Christ, I am enough. Do you believe that? Because it changes everything when you do. I'm telling you, when you live your identity in Christ, God is going to use you to shake your world. Look at somebody beside you and say, I'm a world shaker. I'm a world shaker. Now, that's not with pride. I don't mean it that way. You got salt shakers, you got pepper shakers, you got world shakers, and you who named the name of Christ, you who named the cause of Christ, he says, you are a world shaker. And God says, I want you to live out your faith out there in the world. Faith is never meant to be hidden behind the walls of a home or a church. It's to be lived out and talked about and, and, and lived through our lips and lived through our lives. And faith will always stand up and faith will stand out and faith will speak out. And, and when you live your faith, when you live your identity in Christ, you know this, it will not go unopposed. It's never been easy to live your identity in Christ. It's never been easy to do that. I'm just figuring if Jesus was willing to die for me, I'll be willing to stand for him. Amen. You saw this seven years ago. It's all over the world news. It was unbelievable. It happens every day, but to watch it. It was this time of year. It was February 2015. And the world watched in unbelief, in absolute shock. We saw 21 men kneeling in jumpsuits on a beach in Libya on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. This picture that you're looking at most likely is the one that you actually saw in the news. Behind each one of those men in orange jumpsuits stands a cowardly, masked ISIS terrorist. They were there to ruthlessly murder these 21 men because these men stood up for their faith. These men knew who they were. They knew whose they were. And the world, we couldn't believe what we were seeing. What you did not hear from the major news at networks was that 20 of these 21 men were Egyptian Christians. As I'm recalling, they were in Libya working for some construction company, and when the Muslim radicals found out that they were believers in Christ, they kidnapped them. They took them to the Mediterranean coastline in order to behead them, and the ISIS terrorists, they began this unthinkable act. And when they began this unthinkable act of beheading these 20 Christians, the last thing these 20 men said, it was just two words, those words were Jesus Christ. Amen. And now 20 believers lay dead on the beach on the coast of Libya. And every one of them died with his faithful name on their lips. There was a 21st man there. Now he's alone. He's surrounded by these terrorists. 
He was a West African. He did not grow up a Christian, most likely. He grew up a Muslim, but he had been working and living with these 20 Christians. He, he saw how they lived. He listened to how they talked. He, he ate with them. He worked with them. He listened to them. He watched them. He, he listened to how they prayed, and, and he witnessed how they interacted with other people. They had a huge impact on his life. And, and this is what the liberal progressive news media did not tell you when you saw that seven years ago. With a knife to this man's throat, the ISIS terrorist said to the 21st man who knelt in the sand, the West African, I quote, if you will denounce Christ, you can live. And his last words, as he looked on the body of his 20 dead brothers, he said these words, their God is my God. And I would say to you that they took his life. You can't take a child of God's life. Because the moment he left here, he went there. And he was reunited with a lot of people that, that he cared about. There are many truths on display in the sands of that Mediterranean seashore, but here's the one that I want to spotlight. Those Christians had lived such lives, and they put such an impact on that 21st man. They were such an example of their faith that he would accept their king as his king. And he would choose to die a martyr's death rather than denounce his newfound faith in the one who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. He owned his faith. He knew who he was. He knew whose he was. I say to you that this world cannot take your identity in Christ away from you. If it leaves you, it's because you gave it away. And I'm saying to you, until Jesus Christ comes, which won't be very much longer, I believe you, like me, are going to say, in this world, I'm going to stand. And in this world, I'm going to fight. In this world, I'm going to live who I am, and I'm going to live whose I am. And the world's going to be able to look at me and know who I represent. The world's going to be able to look at me and know that I am a child of the King. It's right there, Acts chapter 8. hope you read it for yourself. And then go over and read Ephesians chapter 1. Father, in this place tonight... The Spirit of God is moving across this room. You've been speaking to us before we ever even walked into this place. And Lord, I know that we're just clay, but we're king's clay. I know that we're just people, but we're, we're the people of God. And I know that, Lord, you count on us. This community counts on us. This church counts on us. These kids count on us. The lost count on us, and they don't even know it, but we know it. God, I pray that every man, every woman, every student, every boy, every girl, every one of us who are part of this Lamb's Chapel family, that God, we, we would stand in this world in the identity that you have given us through your death, through your resurrection, through your Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, Father, the world would know that we are children of the living God. Thank you so much for, for this time that you've given us together tonight to open your book. It's such a treasure. It's such a priceless, priceless time. God, help us to live like what you have said to us tonight. And we're going to love you, and we're going to praise you, and we're going to run with you, and we're going to serve you until the day down here that we take our last breath and we see you face to face. God, we yield ourselves to you this night. And tomorrow morning, we're going to yield ourselves to you. And Friday and Saturday and Sunday and next week and next month and for the rest of this year, we are going to stand as children of the King in whose name we humbly pray.